that we can leverage some of these mind states with and have some perspective around. So one of the reasons why generosity is the first thing that is encouraged in a traditional context is because without it, we don't have the ground for what follows. It is something which is an antidote to critical mind. It's an antidote to disparagement. It's an antidote to clinging. So the society that we are living in is a society that loves to reinforce desire and how fundamentally you are inadequate unless you get the thing that is being sold. And generosity is the opposite. Generosity allows us to connect with our own innate goodness to know that fundamentally we are okay. And that actually our goodness and our okayness is not dependent on the stuff, the things, the having, the getting, the getting rid of. And so it shifts the kind of container that we're working in and cuts across the mainstream message that we get pummeled into us left, right, and center every day of our lives. You know, I live as a nun, and as a nun, I have an alms bowl. And I take my alms bowl into Manitou Springs, and I stand and I walk up and down the streets. Manitou Springs is in, uh, you know, off of Colorado Springs. And, you know, the uh, amazing things happen when I do that. You know, for the last, in the wintertime, there's not so many people that come through in the same way as there are in the summertime. So there's times when nobody offers anything. But there are times when people, they come and they offer me um, a little bit. And then sometimes what happens is they come and they think that what I'm doing is collecting money. And I say, well, actually, I'm not allowed to receive money. And then you have these kind of like blank look. Like, all right, so what is the deal? (coughs) You know? And so when they ask, then I can say, well, this is an alms bowl and I'm collecting food for the day. And so, you know, half this time is not. They say, well, I don't have any food. I can't help you with that, you know. And then sometimes they say, oh, okay, just wait a minute, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll go get you something. And so once, a few times, here in Manatee Springs, you know, somebody comes back with, like, two bags of groceries, okay? So I've known them for, like, a minute and a half, and they come and they bring two bags of groceries, And so I say, you know, when I normally receive something like that, it's customary for me to chant a a blessing chant. Are you, is that all right? And so if if this one woman said, yeah, that'd be okay. So I said, okay, so you're not going to understand the language. But what this is basically about is about the, the, the goodness that comes from giving. Just let your attention connect with your own goodness. That's all I said. And I start chanting, and the floodgates open up, okay? So we're standing on the street. She's just giving me two bags of groceries. There's tears streaming down her face. And I finish the chanting, and she says to me, Thank you, sister. Okay. It's such a radical departure from what we normally experience in our lives, you know? And it's such a radical departure that people actually connect with their own goodness. And yet what happens is so important. 
So one of the things that I learned in living in monasteries, because there's many different cultures that coalesce in a monastery. You know, we had Thai people and Sri Lankan people and Laotian people and Cambodian people. We had English people and Canadian people and Australian people. We had European people. Everybody was there. And so with some of the people from different Buddhist traditional cultures, they've got different practices that they would share with us. And one of the practices was this idea of keeping a good karma book. Now, for us, we think, oh, that's insane. You know, who would want to do that? Nobody's keeping track of the karma. So why keep a good karma book? But it's like we totally picked up the wrong end of the stick. The point of a good karma book is to write down acts of kindness and generosity that you've deliberately done from the time that you were knee-high to a grasshopper. And so if you've deliberately helped somebody or deliberately made it possible for somebody to go to school or you were part of the family bringing food to the monastery or you were part in, in contributing to a school being set up, you write it down in a book and you write down what it was that you did and when you did it. And then if you're feeling depressed, if you're sick, if you're feeling somehow dislocated, or when people were on their deathbeds, then other members of the family would get out their good karma book and read through the list of things that they had done since the time they were knee-high to a grasshopper of all of the acts of kindness they had done over a lifetime. When we contemplate in that way, it brightens the mind. It reminds us of our own virtue. It reminds us of the ways in which we are connected to others and the ways in which we have been of value to other people in this world. It is a tremendously skillful thing to do. Now, one of the things that can happen when a community coalesces and there is a relational field that you can begin to relax into and trust is that the group, the individuals in the group, can mirror for each other your own goodness when you forget. And so we get knocked out by fear or confusion or feeling dislocated or we get spun out by the amount of busyness that we need to do or needing to fix or control. Whatever it is that is our pattern. And somebody can enter into your space and not necessarily even say a lot, but just focusing on the brightness, the goodness, the generosity, the clarity, the aspiration. And it can be a radical inroads into those patterns. So generosity connects us with our own goodness, connects us with our ability to mirror for each other that that is a quality that we can learn to recognize, to value, to accentuate. When we have this as a foundation, then it really supports living with integrity. So integrity in the kind of traditional context is living with the five precepts as a basic standard kind of format. And these precepts from the languaging of the tradition that I come from has to do with the precept to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from uh, speech which is lying or divisive or slanderous. 
and to refrain from drugs and drink which cause carelessness. Now, when I look at this as an internal reflection, when we take the first precept of refrain from killing, what this means on a subtle level is to refrain from harming any living being. And what that means is is that when we actually take this as a precept, we have got to stop the kinds of ways that we harm ourselves. The kinds of slandering, the kinds of belittling, the kinds of shaming, the kinds of undermining, the kinds of devaluing, the kinds of brutality that we bring to ourselves is a routine matter, of course. We have got to recognize it's not acceptable to do that and to stop it. To make a commitment to stop doing that. And as we make that commitment to just stop harming ourselves in those ways, then we also need to recognize that it's not okay to participate or to condone harm that's happening around us. And so then we begin to look and see, well, this makes a difference between the kinds of solvents that we use, the kinds of soap that we use, the places where we bank, the kinds of politics that we support. And so when we make that firm commitment to stop harming in ourselves, then it also is something that immediately connects with the sphere around us of how is this happening in the larger sphere and how can I make choices or decisions or have conversations that make it clear that this is where I stand and that I don't support people hurting each other. The second precept has to do with not stealing. So it's not, you know, jacking somebody's car. It's not jacking somebody's cell phone. It's not going into somebody else's refrigerator and stealing the things that are there, you know. But what it has to do with on an internal level has to do with not taking things that are not given. So today I was at Thai Rockies. And a couple of weeks ago, somebody had offered me the meal, and they'd given me some salad dressing in a plastic container. And I brought it back. And I gave it back to the person who'd given it to me. And it was like the question was in her eyes, well, what are you doing? And I says, well, this was not offered to me, so I'm returning it, you know. It was handed to me, but there was no clarity that this was for me to keep. So I'm giving it back. When we look at this of not something that's not given, it doesn't only have to do with possessions, but it has to do with the way in which we demand to have different experiences than what we're having. So sometimes you wake up and you don't feel so well, and you get crabby because you want to feel well. Sometimes there's body aches and pains, and we get colds, and we get sicknesses, and we have all kinds of things, and we feel resentful because this is what we're experiencing. And so part of this precept on an internal level is to cut across this expecting, this demanding, this wanting things that are not offered. So I have an alms bowl, and I live with my alms bowl, I eat out of my alms bowl, I take my alms bowl, and whatever is put into my alms bowl is offered, you know. So it doesn't matter if I'm a vegetarian or I'm not a vegetarian or if I'm wheat-free or gluten-free or ovo-lactarian. Whatever's put into my alms bowl is received. Now, I have a choice what I do with that. But I can't say, no, I'm lacto-ovo-vegetarian. I won't receive that. And so in a way, our minds and bodies are like an alms bowl. 
that what arises is what is offered. And it's our responsibility to learn to work with that with skill and responsiveness. But it's not for us to say, I don't accept this emotion arising in my mind. I don't accept this body sensation arising in my mind. It's not acceptable to me. And so when we change our orientation, our perspective, and recognize that life is offered, and we have a choice about whether we want to suffer about it or we want to respond to it, that's a choice that we can make in every single moment of our life. It changes dramatically how we're experiencing things. The third precept has to do with uh, sexual misconduct. And in the Buddha's time, it was really, the early teachings, it was really very, very simple what that meant in terms of not engaging in relationships with people who are in committed relationships or with people who are underage. There was nothing mentioned about sexual orientation. All of that was a kind of later interpretation that got part of different traditions that emerged, but it was never part of the early Buddhist teachings. Now, in our contemporary world, with the kind of stuff that's going on, you know, this contemplation about what is sexual misconduct actually needs a longer explanation, a longer discussion. It needs to be thought through in much more care. And so when we loop our sexual lives with the interest to non-harm, we can come up with a kind of understanding about, well, what is actually needed to be at ease as human beings with sexuality and be in relationship with ourselves and others in a way where there is not only not harm, but care and respect, kindness. What does that look like? That is a long conversation. It's actually not a small conversation. And it's worthwhile really bringing that into one's practice, you know? Making sure that this is part of one's contemplation to see, you know, how is this with me? How do I feel with this? How am I with myself? And are there ways in which I can bring an inquiry to this that allows a movement towards greater balance, more health, more ease, more care, more kindness and respect? Not from judgment and not from opinion, but from heart from seeing that this is part of our lives and it's really helpful for this part of our lives also to be part of our practice. When we talk about right speech, you know, the classic description has to do with not lying, not speaking in a way which is divisive, not speaking in a way which is slanderous, not speaking in a way which is useless, you know. So when we're talking about, you know, can we be honest with each other, you know, rather than say, yeah, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. (laughs) Which is what happens in our society, is we get used to an unbelievable superficial way of relating to each other. You know? And so to check out, well, actually, is it honest? You know? It doesn't mean that we have to pour out our soul to every human being that we meet. But to begin to touch what is honest, what's useful. What's timely? What supports creating a fabric of relatedness that allows our heart to open and the community to blossom? What does that look like? Can we move there? 
Now, I just signed up for a leadership training program, and it has us doing all kinds of things which are uncomfortable. You know, it has us talking about the places where we feel uncomfortable. It has us asking specific questions that bring up for people things that they found difficult about what we did or what we said. You know, we don't normally like to go there. But when we do that, then it's like the skeletons in the closet come out dancing. There's less kind of stuff that is unspoken. There's more sense of trust that is present and a more sense that, well, we'll be able to navigate what emerges. It actually has a lot of value. And it takes skill learning it because it doesn't come naturally. And we have very few role models around that are modeling that. The fifth precept has to do with refraining from drugs and drink, which cause confusion and carelessness in the mind. And, you know, for me, using drugs and drinking was not an issue for me. But what was an issue was I was a bliss junkie. So I wanted to squeeze things in order to bring a certain kind of pleasure because I could not tolerate things being ordinary. It felt like death. You know, if it was just normal... It felt totally intolerable. But I do know that when you've got too much drugs, too much alcohol, too much crap in your blood system, your mind cannot think clearly. And so the capacity to keep the rest of the precepts, it just goes out the window. It goes down the toilet. So one year when we had a family camp, So at the monastery, we had a retreat center, and one week a year, it would be filled up with families. So we'd have teeny tiny ones and and toddler ones and little ones and and school-age ones and eight- and nine-year-old ones and adolescent ones and 20-year-old ones and 40-year-old ones and grandmas there. And they'd all come to the monastery and camp out for a week. And the beginning is that we would start with taking the refuges and the precepts. It was just standard. And one year I came in to give a talk about the refuges and the precepts. And I had a styrofoam cup, and I poured some gasoline in it. Have you ever done that? Mm -hmm. The styrofoam evaporates. It (laughs) It evaporates. So when you have too much alcohol in your system, your container dissolves. Your capacity to think clearly, to discern to have connection with your own body, to make any kind of choices that are congruent with your values when you're not smashed is very, very, uh, very tenuous. So it's not an issue about morality. It's an issue of discernment, you know, that if you have the interest to live with a sense of harmlessness, then you've got to tweak it to your advantage to make it possible to make decisions which are clear. It's not about being superior, it's about being smart. <laughs> so kind of ground is, is is that people need to be sober. And we need to do whatever we can to support <coughs> being sober, to say being sober, to encourage being sober. Because without sobriety, you've got very little ground to work with. You can't think straight. And meditation doesn't do anything. You know, it's just kind of fog, you know. There's no way of connecting. So, you know, one of the things a group can support is making the space and supporting each other 
to stay clean and sober. And, you know, to lend a hand and to reach out when people are not. I mean, everyone needs to make the commitment to be there and stay there themselves. But we can certainly create a fabric of care that can make the difference. So generosity, the act of giving, gives rise to the foundation that makes it possible to keep the precepts. The precepts makes it possible to have enough clarity so that we can actually practice. If we don't have precepts, we have very little that we can navigate in terms of what happens with our practice. And so it's useful to gather and periodically reaffirm what our commitments are. You know? Because, you know, this is cutting against the stream of what is mainstream and acceptable. You know, going down to the bar and hanging out and having a drink is cool. It's not cool to have a cup of orange juice. And so what's needed is to have a group of people who have enough valuing of the orange juice cool to navigate the pressure about the other social messages about what is considered cool. So I'd just like to stop here for now and just open it up for maybe a brief discussion and then close with a loving-kindness meditation and sharing the blessing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.